Hello and welcome to show 15 of All Back to Bowie's. This show is called Moon Age Daydream and we had our special guest today, Leslie Ridder. I, I, I'm an enormous fan of Leslie Ridder, uh, as you can probably tell during the interview. Um, but I think she speaks with such passion and pragmatism and insight that she's worth a little bit of anybody's time. So if you don't know her, please uh, listen and enjoy. If you do know her, uh, I'm sure you will like to hear some of the things she focuses on in this interview. Uh, as usual, we also have some amazing um, music and poetry as well. Uh, but in the meantime, settle back and enjoy show 15, Moon Age Daydream with Leslie Riddick. Ladies and gentlemen, hello. Um, my name is David Gregg. I Welcome to the David Bowie's Manhattan rooftop yurt, where we are for all back to Bowie's. Um, some of you might remember back in May at the Brit Awards, David Bowie said uh, had sent a message via uh, the corporeal body of Kate Moss to say, Scotland, stay with us. And so some of us thought, well, that's such a nice invitation that we have to take him up. And uh, so we've come over to his rooftop, Manhattan rooftop yurt. Uh, who knew David Bowie had a guest yurt? But he does. Um, and if you just close your eyes for a moment, you can hear Manhattan outside. I think David's having a bit of work done on the kitchen. Here's some drilling. Um, actually, we've having David having invited us to stay with him. To our surprise, we've recently been inundated with invitations to stay. Another 200 came in the post only the other day. So um, we'll be in Bruce Forsyth's uh, lawn next. And Kirsty Allsop, she has a yurt as well, but it's just slightly better kitted out than this one. So, <clears throat> All Back to Bowie's is about the ch-ch-ch-changes that will be... <laughs> Sorry, that's terrible. Boo! Um, it's, about, it's about the ideas and thoughts and interesting issues that hang around the independence referendum. A, it's a ramshackle salon rather than a hustings. Uh, and for that reason, we don't, we don't really do binary questions. So there's a sort of house rule here at... Bowie's that we don't ask people if they're going to vote yes or no or if they had a vote how they would cast it really there's only one binary issue that I think is of any serious importance today that we need to be talking about I think it's something that cuts to the heart of, um, of everything in Scotland at the moment and, and, and it's this and I think it's very important that we get your we need to know from where you, you guys talk so we need to find out today and that question is, is it Bowie or is it Bowie? <laughs> and so before we begin, we'll have a little referendum on that, if it's okay. Um, we've been doing this as we go along. Sarah has been keeping our figures. Do we have a running total at the moment? Four 
481 for Bowie and 351 for Bowie. Okay, it's, well, hold on. <laughs> so, could you please answer this referendum question? Do you agree that David Bowie is pronounced Bowie? It's it, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty, twenty-one, twenty-two, twenty-three, twenty-four, twenty-five, twenty-six, twenty-seven, twenty-eight, twenty-nine, thirty, thirty-one, thirty-two, thirty-three, thirty-four, thirty-five, thirty-six, thirty-eight, thirty-nine, forty. That's forty. Uh, do you think no, no, David Bowie is pronounced Bowie? Twenty. A lot of people. Any undecided? We need, there's, some people say they need more information, which is very, it's annoying, you, what can we do, you know? Video evidence, well, Kieran Hurley, our other host, says that we have video evidence that it's Bowie, but, you know, the, demo, the democratic will of the people will always triumph, so it's David Bowie for today. Anyway, there's another thing, we, we uh, 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 Bowie's, um, we don't, uh, with our guests, we don't really open up for questions because we've got a short time, we want a lot of stuff we want to pack in. But we do also want the audience's input and involvement in every show. And so every day we ask the audience to do a little task, a little bit of homework throughout the show that becomes part of the show towards the end. And what we ask you to do is to complete a sentence on the theme of the day's show. So the first thing is, before we do anything, can you look about your person and find a scrap of paper, a flyer, a receipt, a bus ticket, anything that you can just scribble something on, if you maybe have a notepad, anything, a bit of newspaper, and also if you have a pen. And if you don't have a pen, look along your row and you will surely see someone who does have a pen. And because this is Scotland, and in Scotland we are innately social democratic, we will all share our pens and we can write our sentences. Um, now, as you're getting ready, I'll tell you a little bit about today's theme. Today's uh, we, uh, is one of the special Bowies where we have a guest, uh, a special guest rather than a panel. Um, and today we have uh, a fantastic guest to interview. Um, and we've called it... The, our guest today is Leslie Riddick, the broadcaster, author, journalist, polemicist, thinker, general, all-round, indie ref, um, commentator, and uh, across all aspects of the, um, the debates and the issues of democracy and community in Scotland. Um, I'll introduce him more fully later on. But we called the show Moon Age Daydreams, because it seemed to me that her book, uh, Blossom, uh, in a sense is one of the, uh, the, the, the best examples, if you like, of the kind of practical daydreaming that uh, the independence referendum is producing. At the heart of that book is an idea of community. So today, as we go through the whole show, and we have so much to pack in, we've got music and poetry as well as an interview with Leslie, just I'd like you to have a think to complete the sentence, community is dot, dot, dot community is dot 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 um, and just when we get towards the end of the show we'll start to collect them in and if it all goes well and we've got time what we'll do is uh, a, a crowdsourced poem 
out of all of your contributions. Um, so feel free to be creative. Don't, don't, we don't have to be straight down the line political. Community is. What's community to you? What's your community? What thoughts come to you as we go through the show? Um, all is up for grabs. Community is. Okay, I think without further ado, uh, it's time to go to our first act. We always have music at Bowie's, Bowie's, and today's no exception. We have an absolutely wonderful performer for you today. Please give it up for Lomond Campbell. So, I mean, clearly it's neither Bowie nor Bowie, it's David Bouvet. Is that song by a Welsh girl? I'm going to do two songs. I have to do one at the start and then one at the end. So the first one's by a Welsh girl. The last one's by an Irish girl. Beauty where I don't want to share She says that hands fill whole I so bright they steal the night And I run for you each time My sister young, my sister strong
Wow, that was brilliant. Um, we'll hear more from Lomond later. Uh, the other thing we always have every uh, day at Bowie's is a different provocation. Um, a provocation, a thought, something to take you on a different angle, something you've not considered, particularly in relation to the independence referendum. Uh, today, uh, knowing that one of the themes of Leslie's book is kind of practical ideas for the kind of improvements that uh, can take place across the country, particularly with regards to things like energy, I thought it would be very interesting to have a provocation um, from somebody who knows everything that there is to know about energy in Scotland. Um, he's uh, he's an seconded to the Scottish Government um, on a project of heat mapping. His name is Hugh Muschamp, and he's going to come and give us a provocation on why we should get excited about heat. Thank you very much. Now, I knew I was asked to do this very briefly, just so it's, it's a, this is really just coming from the heart about what I'm thinking about. The referendum has allowed us an amazing opportunity to, to, to discuss things and to discuss a new vision for Scotland. And I really passionately think that one of those visions for Scotland that we rarely have had a chance to discuss is a vision for energy and for heat. Why should we get about excited about energy? I mean, come on, you just, you just switch the light on and the light comes on, you, you turn a little dial and the heat comes up, doesn't it? You know, we don't really have to think about it. It's always there all the time. But today I want to say, well, the situation could change. At the moment we rely on many different sources of, of fuel, but those forces, sources of fuel are over time going to run out or they're going to change, even if it's over 50 years or 100 years. But we need to think of a new way of, of, of how we're going to use those energy types. So why get excited about heat? Did you know that in Scotland, over half the energy we use for heat is for heating and cooling? Should I say that again? Over half the energy we use is for heating and cooling. About 24% for, for, for transport and, uh, and about the same for electricity. The major thing of it. So get excited about it because it is the main energy that you need. The main thing that drives your lives. Get excited about it because we spend 2.6 billion a year already, every year, on heating and cooling. We already push out of our pockets that amount of money, and we could spend it differently. We could spend it on a different system. We could choose a different energy system. Get excited about it because Scotland has immense resources of renewable energy, immense resources of potential of energy. And get excited about it because there's a new way we could think about energy. We could think about energy as a much more local resource. And I really think that Leslie will, will touch on that as, a, as an opportunity for us. Our challenge in Scotland is that many of our energy sources are intermittent. We have things like tidal. It comes four times a day. It's really regular. There's a huge amount of energy flying around out there. But we have energy systems we've designed which are designed to have energy immediately. So we need to rethink our energy systems. And, but we can do that. And if we've got a debate about changing what we want as a country, regardless of which way the referendum goes, we've got a chance to do that. And heat is a very, very local thing. If you've got hot water in your pipes, you don't want to transport it from here to Inverness. You want to use it locally. And because you use it locally, because you create it locally, then it becomes something that's connected to you because you can see the plant that's creating it, you can see where it comes from, and you could also buy into it. You could also have a part ownership of that thing. 
Did you know that there are 10,000 houses on heat networks in Scotland? I bet you didn't. I didn't until I found out about this job. Did you know that you can store energy? You can store energy in immense ways. In Nordic countries, they're storing energy in solar storage from the heat energy from the sun in a similar latitude to us in three-month stores to boost winter heating, stores the size of football stadiums that lose one degree over three months. We've got the technology. It's out there. And we have a huge amount of energy in, from business. We've got people who basically heat energy, they create something, and then they put it in a cooling tower after they finish with it, and they pay money to cool it down before they can put it back in the environment again. We could take that energy from them before they cooled it, and possibly even pay them for it, reduce the cost of business, and make a saleable product at the end of the day. So, why get excited about it? Some things, always being Scottish government, there's a, there's a document basically here which is called um, the Heat Generation Policy Statement. It's just come out. It's a new vision for heat for Scotland. It may not be right, but it needs people like you to say what you want it to be. I think it's got moved a huge way along the, the agenda about what that vision ought to be, but it needs to be driven on and needs to work through. And my work's been to create a heat map, which is basically an immense map of every single building. So your houses, your offices, everything are on this map. And there's a cut down version of it on the Scottish Government website, scotland.gov.uk forward slash heat map. You can play with it and you can find out about your local own area. And we've given that heat map to every local authority. So go to your local authority and say, I want to see it. I want to understand what it is about for me. So why get excited about heat? I really believe that heat is something that's very much about us. It's about a huge thing that we need. And it's something that, as a local level, we could actually have a major impact. And we could actually do more ownership about it. So here's my challenge. Get excited about heat. Thanks very much, Hugh. That's really brilliant. I remember um, when I really connected with you on this issue was we live in the same uh, village, North Queensferry, and we were in on the train. And one morning he was telling me about the work that he's doing. And it was the first time I really, really got in my head something practical that seemed transformative. It was this idea of the way that you can store heat and lose only one degree over three months, something I had no idea about. And, and um, it suddenly connected to me. We were going over the fourth, that the tide going up and down the fourth was right under us. And the thought of potentially harnessing that and then storing it and using it in the winter, it just all became very real and very clear. And I think that's as good a way of introducing our special guest today as possible because it's an idea of practical community thinking. Our guest today, uh, I'd like you to please give it up for Leslie Riddick. like Tammy Wynette and Kenny Rogers, isn't it? <laughs> Except we're not going to sing. Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. So, a, uh, Leslie, you've had an extraordinary career in broadcasting and in radio and in journalism. Um, I was reminded this morning that you edited, uh, or you were part of the collective editing Harpies and Quines in yep. the 1980s, which I, in the 1990, early 1990s, which I remember. 
You've also been involved with land buyouts, like you're involved with egg and the land buyout there. You set up Nordic Horizons. Um, and to sort of cap it all in terms of uh, talking today, you've written Blossom, which you have with you, um, which is your sort of, uh, I guess, a vision for how Scotland could flourish and blossom. Um, I want to touch on all of these things through the debate today. Um, but I guess the first thing I want to ask is, is you're involved in so much around the referendum. Um, where are you now? What's, what's happening right at this, uh, at this moment during the festival? Are you touring? What, what, what's going on now? Well, I'm, I'm doing a thing called uh, Referendum TV, which actually makes this look extremely polished and organised. <laughs> Um, and it's, I mean, it's a fantastic thing in that so many people have just decided it's like the mental brakes are off. Nobody's waiting for the cavalry to come at all. And it's not just with reference to the future, uh, the constitutional future. You begin to realise actually something I've probably always been a bit keen on, which is just you need to roll your own in life. You need to get going. The buyouts were like that. Harpies and Quines was like that. Referendum TV is very like that. It's along in Hills, if you're allowed to advertise other Yes, venues. you absolutely are allowed um, to. It's Hill, it's Hill Street Theatre, which is away at the other end of Thistle Street for Scots uh, that are in the room that know the, the layout. And um, it's Ian McGuire and myself mostly anchoring it. It's on from one till two. And um, we've had a plethora of guests who've actually astonished us a lot of the time with the kind of different connections they've been making um, about what's, in, what's not generally coming out. On the, on the mainstream so, media. I, I really like the idea of roll your own television. That's a, it's a fantastic <laughs> thought. Um, let's talk about Blossom. So what prompted you to write Blossom? Well, um, well, actually, it was, it, was having, it was finding that I was saying the same things over and over and over again in response. I don't know if you've ever had this, where you find the same things keep getting re repeated. Um, and there were strange things. I mean, every, probably not a week would go by where I would not have to point out to Scots. And I mean, I was brought up in Northern Ireland, so I feel like I'm still not exactly an interloper, but I came over here at the age of 13. I found I was still having to say to Scots, have you not noticed you're living in tenements? And people would kind of look at me and they'd say, what? And I'd say, well, that's kind of different to the rest of the UK, actually. You know, the, the, the main housing type is terraced housing around the rest of the UK. You know Coronation Street? And actually the statistics bear this out totally. There's not, in the English housing statistics, there is no category called tenement. Um, and that actually starts to make, to me when I came here at 13, it made an obvious difference. Uh, you have to share space. And somebody planned it. Um, as somebody who lived in London quite often and found myself in my more raucous years coming back in the wee small hours and maybe, not me, but other folk, accidentally, you know, knocking through plywood divides between flats as they stumbled upstairs at night. Having planned flats that are actually, you know, made of stone is really quite different. Um, and so those kind of things I find I was saying all the time, and the points you made about energy, as someone with a mother from Wick, um, I find myself constantly saying to people, do you not realise the six top tidal stream sites in Europe are in the Pentland Firth? And you'd feel like a broken record. And finally, you know, having, having also been involved in so many incredible things like the egg buyout, which changed my life, but not just that one, where extraordinary Scots um, had did heroic things and were there then airbrushed from the mainstream media story. 
And I'd say that despite my own attempts to try and get programs done about them, which were all rejected. I just began to kind of feel it was I was carrying too much. I needed mm -hmm. to actually get this down somewhere so I didn't need to keep repeating it. As a product of which I've been repeating it 110 <laughs> times <laughs> since September when it came out. How, I mean, I, I, I suppose that for me the key idea, and cor correct me if this isn't, but for me the key idea of the book is that um, there are some things which we don't understand are, are normal. So actually that Scotland's quite a weird country in a way, uh, or some of the daft things we do are quite weird, and that there are other countries in the world where it's perfectly normal um, for things to be different. Um, and that perhaps brings us to the Nordic connection. But do you think that's right? Is that, is that a way that you would uh, characterise yeah. some of what you're saying? Yeah. Um, I mean, yes. And, and I, I mean, I think Scotland is weird in quite a number of ways. And it's difficult for people who've lived here to get your heads around that because you obviously think whatever you've grown up with is normal. I mean, as an illustration, I grew up in Belfast and I thought bombs going off every night was normal. You know, you will think everywhere you grew up is normal. Um, but, for example, our land ownership situation is utterly weird. Nobody in the rest of the developed world is doing this. We have 16 people who own 10% of Scotland. That is beyond weird. And I'll tell you what's even weirder is that every event where I've mentioned that statistic, there has not been the slightest glimmering of response from any audience, neither yourselves, with one exception, when there was a Nigerian woman in an audience sitting at the front who went, what? <laughs> now, the weirdness is that we have got systems working here and dynamics which are absolutely at odds with the aspiration we've been showing for the last 80 years uh, to vote in so for a social democracy. We've been voting that way for a very long time. Um, but we have put up with structures. We haven't had a choice in many regards, but we have put up with structures which are precisely the opposite. So that's the weirdness I'm trying to get people to think about because if you don't start off questioning some basic things about this country, you will simply fiddle, fiddle with appalling outcomes rather than think they could be transformed into something which we should be aiming for, which I think are Nordic standards. Tell us a bit about the Nordic standards, perhaps even if, if we could start with land. Is how, how could we reconceive land learning from some of our Nordic neighbours? Well, here, here's an interesting one that shows you how land, democracy and outlook are quite related. It's a 40-second it's a history lesson. 1814, um, the Danes had gone in with Napoleon in the Napoleonic Wars. Napoleon got gubbed, the Danes got gubbed, and their properties got taken off them, and one of them was Norway. And while the Allies were thinking about who would get Norway, it was finally to be Sweden in a union of crowns, the Norwegians had that kind of rush of blood to the head, which some of, uh, some of us may recognize being current, where they thought anything was possible. And the, the Prince of Norway summoned 112 men, because it was them kind of days, to a place called Eidsvoll, and they wrote a constitution in five weeks flat. And it was frisky, because it was in the wake of the French Revolution, mm. but it had this pretty standard clause in it. It enfranchised all, effectively, male landowners. And overnight, 45% of Norwegians got the vote. The same clause in the Reform Act of 1832 in Britain gave 5% of people the vote. Now, that shows you a couple of things, huge things. Um, if you've got 45% of people voting, you know, that you're motoring in terms of democracy. You, you can't have an elite sitting in a city carving it all up amongst themselves. You can if you've only got 5%. 
And that was a democracy we had for hundreds of years. But it was possible because the Norwegians already had a situation, like all the Nordics, where land was something that was owned uh, by lots and lots of people. Um, and that's pretty normal, actually. As our latitude, that's normal. Do you think it's... I mean, how? I know there's a land reform bill going through the parliament at the moment. How? How is that... Is that stepping towards uh, breaking uh, uh, breaking up the land ownership pattern in Scotland? Well, I'd started off when I started off. This was published first in September, and you know, there was no causes for optimism on any of these fronts. Um, there was a land reform review group appointed, which sat, did an interim report, and it was pretty shocking actually. It really pulled its punches. Um, Professor Jim Hunter, who some of you may have heard of, uh, who who's written things like the making of the Scottish crofting community, great guy. Uh, he was on that, resigned in quite a flurry, drew attention to how rubbish that, that report had been, and actually the government beefed it up. And lo and behold, about six weeks ago, the final report came out, and it was a zinger. And here's four things it's recommending, which could be in the land reform bill that the Scottish government has promised will be introduced to Parliament before the next Holyrood election. One, the end of primogeniture. Now, here is another utter weirdness. We are the only people, I, th I believe in the planet, but I'm still waiting to be connect corrected, who still have the practice that the oldest son can legally inherit all land from his father. And that's one of the reasons that our estates are still so big, these sporting estates. Um, the rest of Europe got rid of it with the Napoleonic Code in 1801. Um, the English got rid of it in 1926. And the reason it didn't get changed in Scotland is because Scottish landowners sitting in the House of Lords blocked it. So we are the only people left doing this. And that could change. That's one recommendation. Second is that sporting estates, which are businesses, as we've all heard about the Glorious Twelve, should actually pay business or sporting rates. They don't. And again, that's ultra weird. You know, nobody else at our, uh, in Northern Europe is not requiring people who own land to pay some form of contribution. So there's change number two. Change number three, that there should be a maximum acreage per person or interest. And this is really important to me because that's stepping away from the British conception of practically everything. The Brits don't do interfering in the market. You don't do telling people that that's enough. You don't, you don't actually question the overwhelming uh, driver of the British economy, which is money will buy you anything. You don't do that. The Nordics do. They have all sorts of regulations. You can't buy land, uh, agricultural land in Denmark um, unless you've done five years at agricultural college. There's all sorts of restrictions like that mm. around Northern Europe. We're the only people who go, nah, you have it. You haven't got a scooby what land looks like. You've never landed a fish. Come on down. So that would put a maximum acreage in. Of course, it's got to be discussed how you do it, but I would imagine the Duke of Buclue, a bit too big. And finally, there is a finally, and I can't remember what it is. It's Jim well, Hunter's favourite one, which is it would be giving tenants, agricultural tenants, a right to buy. And he believes, actually, out of all of them, that could be the most profoundly different. And those four together will transform Scotland. The, um one th point about that, of course, is that that doesn't require independence to bring in. I mean, it's being brought in out with independence. Um, do you think there's more pressure that, that could... I mean, do you think you're kind of... The kind of vision that you're talking about in Blossom, to what extent... 
can that be actually shared out amongst parties even before we get to the question of of um, independence or otherwise? Well, you're you're right. Um, but there's, there's a question that's been hovering around all of this here. There's a question of do we have the power to do something and there's a question of do we have the political will. Now, we do have some powers to do some things we haven't chosen to use. And to my mind, that's because we don't have the political will. Um, political will, it ain't ha- easy to just switch on like a tap. And at the moment, although there is quite a lot of agreement across the parties actually about land, it's not a high priority for anybody. Um, there's also all sorts, you know, you've seen it, all sorts of you know, effect, really embarrassingly poor bickering across party lines so that if something's proposed by one party, it ends up having to be proposed by the others because of the independence referendum mm-hmm. debate. Um, but the final thing I think that's really important is um, I disagree with Alex Salmond about being overwhelmingly keen on Britishness, whatever that really is. Because to me, unless you start to tackle some of the underlying philosophies that really drive an awful lot of policy in Britain, which is a top-down, elitist society that really operates on a pretty you-sit-there-till-we-fix-you basis, um, until you tackle that, you'll never tackle land because it's far too scary. You've got the whole establishment in there. You've got them bought into all sorts of other policies you need like energy, like sustainable development, like forestry, like farming. To, to look that all in the face, to look down the gun of the barrel, the barrel of the gun even, um, after all these years where politicians have flinched, to look that down the barrel, you need an enormous amount of political will and you need to know the public's behind you. It isn't logically connected to independence, but I think the kind of change that would happen if people were saying, we want a wholesale change to this society, would be the kind of thing that would drive us easily and and progressively towards this sort of change. I found myself uh, the other day, I think it was possibly because we had Nicola Sturgeon as a guest, and I'm not entirely certain how this came about, but I found myself using the word Rodochian, <laughs> meaning, yes, meaning the Rodochian, the Rodochian, the, the, the Rodochian philosophy. It's a new word, I've coined it, and I'm going to claim it. But I'll tell you why it came out. It was because, it, and, and I, I'd love to sort of explore this with you that i listen to you do a podcast weekly i recommend it to everybody it's really good you're out doing meetings you've got the book blossom there's nordic horizons there's the media work you're doing and i guess there's something for me that binds it all together and and it's a way of seeing the world i suppose and and i find it quite an infectious way of seeing the world but i wonder if 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 you think that's true and if so what what do you think the characteristics of that way of seeing the world are well, that's very kind. I don't know if she gave you a Sturgeonian response. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, well, I think actually um, th- the main thing to me is uh, that I value in life is independent mindedness. And I could just stop there, mm-hmm. but I won't. <laughs> because, Phew. you know, the reason that I completely admire uh, so many, so it was the Nordics so much is that um, they, are, they are tremendously independent-minded people. Now, I mean, we're sitting with problems, like, for example, coming back to the heating. We still have old people dying of hyperthermia here. It's unknown in all the Arctic regions of the Nordic nations. They're very practical people. But they should, in those regions, they should all be dead. You know, the Icelanders are the most barking people on the planet. 
Um, Iceland was discovered three times before anyone stayed. <laughs> you know, that's not a joke. Um, you know, can you imagine living in a country where every time you look up the weather forecast, you get a seismic reading? Can you imagine living in a country beside a volcano that's over, long overdue, its most incredible eruption? The last one on, the, on this scale was the one that caused the French Revolution because it created clouds across the Northern Hemisphere. And those guys are still sitting there, thriving, coming up with great ideas, tapping geothermal energy, recreating their economy, imprisoning bankers, changing their political system, coming up with a 3% growth rate, and realizing that culture is the basis of their economy. They have 3,000 cultural-related businesses. What is not to like? There is not more people in Iceland than there is in Greater Falkirk. You know, when you've been there and seen that and taken in the breathtaking audacity of these people clinging on to these bits of rock, and you come back to languid, fertile, resourceful Scotland, and realize that we're still sitting like, like paying guests in our own country by comparison, it breaks your heart first, and then by gum it motivates you. And so it's for the independent-minded in this country, um, there are different avenues for how to live your life than there are for the people who are waiting to be told what's next. And perhaps this whole referendum will cleave on those temperamental outlooks as much as anything else. You've been around the country with that message and with, your, with the book, and I know you've also spoken on panels about the independence referendum as well. You've probably done more meetings than most of the, the politicians have. How do you find both, how, how are you finding the debate, but how are you, are you finding those ideas are gaining traction with people? Are you finding your, people are skeptical? How do you find people in those meetings? Well, first of all, if they were skeptical, I have to be kind of realistic enough to know that it'd probably be a bit scary to tell me that, you know, because mm -hmm. I seem to be scary to some people. Um, other people just come up and give me a big hug, which is lovely. 80% um, of the audience is usually female, which, not being funny blokes, that's pretty lovely too, uh, because there's a sort of default, really, with an awful lot of politics, which is it, it is generally a male-led thing. And I'd have to say about the referendum campaign, uh, this is not to generalize hugely, but probably, um, it's pernickety, it's very detail-laden, and it can t tend to sort of skip over the reasons why you would want to look for a different kind of way of living. Now, those are the things that actually I find women relate to very strongly. So most meetings end up with, with a tremendous conversation with women, particularly older women, and some of the most incredibly touching things are said by people in those moments. I, and it's interesting to me that you, you, you definitely rail against sort of yaboo politics. And I notice that when you do events and things, you try to rearrange the meeting if you, if you can into different formats or to different uh, uh, gender balance on the panel and so on. Are you finding that gaining any traction as you, uh, the, you know, the idea that we maybe need to meet in a different way? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I sort of uh, refused to appear on one event uh, which had seven men and there was going to be me, and the organiser didn't think there was anything strange about that. So I just said, I'm sorry, I'm not doing it. And he just said, oh, well, cheerio. Uh, then, thankfully, two new men actually said, well, we're not doing it either. Then it became a problem. 
Um, and then some two new women came in and it totally changed the meeting. Now, a lot of people who are anywhere near, you know, the kind of, if you like, more modern ways of thinking have now got the stage of thinking, we now must have gender balance. And actually, that's usually the first bit of then thinking, actually, why are we, we're doing it today, sages on stage? Why are we, you know, conducting everything the way we're conducting it? So it opens up a lot more questioning. I'd have to say, though, that um, in a lot more of the sort of straight official debate, um, it's still, there still aren't nearly enough good people. I mean, you, you know, how many, you should be on everything. There's people I'm seeing around this room that should be on everything. Half the people that are on referendum TV, the reason it's there is because no one in a month of, a million months of Sundays will ever think that a professor on childcare could be particularly interesting about why you want to have an independent Scotland. So it's, it's the paucity of imagination that is just still such an absolute yeah. redoubt within the mainstream. Everything that, that makes me think there has to be a huge momentum post-independence, post-referendum, whatever the vote, to make sure that we just get this boring stuff, this limiting, boring, self-perpetuating self elites out of the way that we do things and, and start to frisk the whole thing up the way that Scots know we can do. I was, uh, I was about to ask you whether you think that that's, whether you think, wh where you think we stand at the moment. Do you, do you, I suppose, do you feel optimistic or pessimistic that the kind of vision that you're outlining, um, that its moment is now, or do you think its moment is 20 years hence? Uh, well, I am, um, I am a, an optimist, actually. Um, otherwise, I couldn't have put the energy into try all the things that have happened mm. lately. And I'm sure that everyone who's been running around has realised this about themselves. You know, you catch yourself one day and think, by gum, I must really think that things are possible. Because look at me. Look at everyone I know. And that's another strange thing. It actually tends to be your whole friend set and then your extended new friend set who all have the same um, outlook. Now, I'm old enough to know that these moments have come and gone, but I have never witnessed anything like this in my life in any part of Britain. This is, you know, the, the amount of energy there is on the go, the possibilities, the, the changes that have already happened that have allowed people to think differently. If we do get to a stage, I'm sorry to keep banging on about it, but if we were able to tackle land reform, if we were able to then, because we would have the groundwork in place to have really small communities, it was on the front page of the Herald, if we're allowed to mention it in this city, yesterday, that even Cosler's calling for a hundred small uh, councils rather than the big, irrelevant, large ones. Strangely, the dam may have, have broken and all the good ideas that are sitting untapped, like the district heating, they all depend on local, truly local stuff happening. And yes, that's all possible. So why wouldn't you believe in it? And I do. Grand. Um, I know that uh, we've got other things to go on. I feel like I could sit and talk all day. I know you've also got to do an interview with uh, uh, the BBC outside. Uh, so... Can I just say yep. one other tiny thing, which is I've also realised as I've sat there that I actually then need to disappear, having made the terrible mistake of thinking that this was St Andrews in the Square in Glasgow. Do the attention to detail problem. So I actually have to be in Castle Milk at three o'clock to talk to a women's group there. <laughs> so I'm afraid I will have to disappear. But will we still be able to yes. buy the book? Well, the, the, uh, the, my husband, Chris Smith, and the other side of the Leslie Riddick podcast is uh, sitting uh, at the back 
the new man uh, the pivot at yeah. the back who's got books if you'd like them so um, I'd be able to sign them very quickly Fantastic. but I would otherwise need, to, I th- otherwise need to run I thoroughly recommend the book I thoroughly recommend the podcast watch Referendum TV you don't have to watch it live uh, because you'll be at All Back to Bowie's of course but you can you can watch it online but in the meantime please uh, give it up uh, thank you very very much to Leslie Ritter thanks Leslie that's great Um, that was brilliant. So now uh, we have to welcome to our stage. Every day at Bowie's we have a poet, um, and today's no exception. And I'd like to welcome today's poet, the wonderful Callum Roger. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, so this afternoon I'd like to present a poem uh, that I first performed at TEDx Glasgow at the uh, Royal Conservatoire a couple of months ago, now available online on the TEDx YouTube channel. It's a poem in which I celebrate Glasgow's cultural life in all of its joys and contradictions, although I hasten to add that many of those joys and contradictions apply equally to Edinburgh and indeed to the whole of Scotland. By way of introduction, I'd like to remind you all of that famous wee Glasgow rhyme that describes the four elements of the Glasgow coat of arms. It goes like this. There's the tree that never grew, the bird that never flew, the fish that never swam, and the bell that never rang. Now, in first impressions, that may seem rather negative. It actually refers to a series of miracles performed by the patron saint and founding father of Glasgow, St Mungo. So it's actually a cool wee story, but I'm kind of sceptical of this association of Glasgow and miracles. You hear it in the arts a lot, People talk about the Glasgow miracle as if the cultural successes of the city are the result of some kind of divine intervention. It's nonsense, and it fails to account for the the talent, the labour, the camaraderie and the spirit that go into making our country's cultural life so vital. So, as a small corrective to these tendencies, I'd like now to present my poem, Glasgow Flourishes. I hope you all enjoy it. There's a tree that never grew, there's the bird that never flew. The fish that never swam, and the bell that never rang. Some would have it thought that Glasgow's wrought from miracles. They're wrong. It lives in stone, souls, song, and syllables. So if the tree never grew, then it blossomed, burst into the colour of a sunrise over the Clyde, flowered in the streets where the pavement cracks and in the weather-torn fissures of the tenement flats, whose stones, if we listen to them closely, Keep clutched tightly the sooty echoes of our history. Brick mingles with memory and every building in the city blooms. The Kingston Bridge and the Finiston Crane flourish in the sunlight, or more than likely in the rain. And into this glory of sun, stone, rain and river, we are the figures that animate the frame. Like a Macintosh rose, geometric and organic forms flow together. This tree, our city, in its blooming, grows. And if the bird never flew, then it nested, blessed with a blooming branch bearing the burden of home. We took twigs tentatively twisted, shaped and sewed into well-worn nooks from parkhead to partick, and poised between past and future, known and unknown, flourish towards the sky from whence the rain still pours because it pours. It pours on all of us, not one of us alone. 
for our nests are connected by the branches that bear them, and each lends a lyric to a symphony of birdsong that calls into the gloaming of the encroaching night, and look, from the top of the lighthouse see the whole flock squawking. We are the birds who, in our nesting, take flight. And if the fish never swam, then it fed, nibbled at the coral of culture till its grey scales turned red, inflamed by music, art, song, and staying up way too long past bedtime. We have seen schools form under Dreek Sucky Hall streetlights, been borne along by wild nights, scorned the too unruly, but truly also played the fool ourselves under the stars of the Glasgow school. Because we drank too, yes, drank like a fish, as if to hold on to night like a wish when all our truths are amiss. But in the great cosmic scheme, we're all little fishes, and here in this shimmer, the city flourishes, so we feed on what nourishes, and together we swim. And if the bell never rang, then it tolled. Told stories, told of the fishes, the birds and the tree. A whole territory told in the day-to-day tales of those who called it home, who chose to make it theirs. Where we are and where we speak and where we share our lives is where Glasgow lives, whether to flourish or survive. For this we know, no bagpipe plays a note without its chanter. The pulse of our city is first felt in what we call with love the banter. It is a raucous tune, yet dawn defines another drizzly day and the city gives clues too of a quiet dignity. The town tolls at Central Station in the folds of our commute, a sincere and half-mute thank you. Because we say what matters when it matters, and so the bell rings out and true. The tree blossomed and grew, the bird nested and flew. The fish fed and it swam, the bell tolled and rang and rang and rang. Some would have it thought that Glasgow's wrought from miracles, the wrong. It lives in stone, souls, song and syllables. Thank you very much. That was great. That's fantastic. Thank you. And... Um, and particularly, particularly nice to uh, have a hymn to Glasgow here in the Edinburgh Festival. Um, uh, so, now, have you all been doing your sentences? Have you been thinking about community? Community is... Dot, dot, dot. There's been lots and lots to get you going. Uh, just have a last think about it as we're going to have um, the next little section of the show uh, and then we'll collect them in. Community is... Uh, one thing we always do at Bowie's is we have a letter. We have a letter from, and we've had letters from Canada yesterday. We've had letters from uh, uh, Indonesia, Singapore. Um, and today we have a letter from somewhere uh, equally interestingly away from Edinburgh. A letter from Dumfries. A by the wonderful artist Matt Baker. Uh, and so if Sarah, my uh, assistant, will help with the screens, we will play the letter. And assuming that all the technology works, which I did say that this was a ramshackle salon, um, we will be able to hear the letter. So just one moment. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, this is a letter from Dumfries from Matt Baker. Greetings from Dumfries and Galloway. 
the southwest corner of Scotland. I'm Matt Baker. I'm a public artist currently part of an artist collective that employs six people in the centre of Dumfries. We're an independent lot down here, much of that character being shaped by our relationship to the land. When Scotland becomes politically independent, D&G will be in a pretty exclusive club in Europe by being a region with two international borders, which will be Ireland over here, England over here, and in fact three if you count Scotland over here and over here. We do get pretty pissed off when people refer to us as the borders though. As everyone knows, the borders are the posh bit south of Edinburgh, where they have trains and they have roads. We do, though, feel a kinship with the rest of south of Scotland and with Cumbria and Northumbria in England. We're used to living with borders and the subtle shifts of identity that that brings. In language, for example, we describe ourselves as down here or up here, depending on who we talk to. Allegiance is a useful tool when you live near a border. At a recent event in Newcastle about the effect of a more autonomous Scotland on Northern England, a consensus emerged that the existence of an independent Scotland would assist the northeast of England to assert its own particular regional identity. The argument is this. Currently, London and the southeast of England have such a loud identity within the UK that the best that everyone else can do is define themselves as not London. Folk in Newcastle felt that the existence of a new centre of power in Scotland would allow the north of England to express a more complete and a more useful identity, i.e. in relation to two centres of power rather than just one. And I believe that this becomes one of the most compelling arguments for Scottish independence, to influence democracy in Britain towards a greater regionalism and a more localised and inclusive decision-making. It'll come as no surprise that this who's in charge question is a hot topic in D&G just now. But you might be surprised about the flavour of the debate. The question for many is whether we are better off being told what to do by London or by Edinburgh. The argument being that the central belt are a bunch of communists who think that the south of Scotland actually means Motherwell. And that we might get a better deal from London. See that flexible border allegiance thing in action? And as the debate in Newcastle suggested, the biggest issue is this idea that power is elsewhere and what we do about that. In D&G, we have to look to the land, who loans it and how that affects everything here. Our region is about 120 miles across, but if you were to travel from Langham in the east to Port Patrick in the west, you would pretty much be always within the land of just seven privately owned estates. What this means in practice is that everyone is enmeshed in a web of very subtle but very powerful interrelationships that are centred around the castles. The protection of one's place in the order of things becomes a very powerful force in maintaining the status quo, a status quo that argues that us mere mortals are not capable of looking after the land and the only reason we have a countryside at all is because the landed gentry have looked after it for us. This kind of dependency culture keeps people in a constant state of anxiety, an anxiety about clinging on to what we have and a fear that any change will likely leave us with a smaller piece of the pudding, a pudding that is divided up elsewhere, of course, rather than thinking that we could be part of making our own pudding. 
But there is a new rural dynamic growing right now, one that is demanding a new partnership between urban and rural, one based on the challenge of climate change and the urgent global responsibility we all share. There are signs of new ways of working between land and communities in D&G and elsewhere in rural Scotland that hold promise of a rurally-based economy that can create a new balance with the urban. Here in the southwest, we are already self-sufficient and a net exporter of renewable energy, and transforming ourselves into an interlinked power station should hold incredible opportunities for regional development. At the same time, we've been granted UNESCO biosphere status. We have the UK's only dark skies park, and forestry practice is transforming itself. Running through all of this is a new recognition of the social and economic value of culture. In D&G, we have more artists, makers and creative industries per head of the population than anywhere else in Britain. Our local authority is recognising that the old economic realities are changing and it is time for us to grow our own solutions, ones that bring together technological innovation with creativity and culture, a synthesis that weaves through education, health and well-being and economics. An example of how this is being manifest is the Biennial Environmental Art Festival Scotland that is based in D&G. The festival is an expression of a community of interest that includes artists, scientists, farmers, people from industry, teachers, healthcare workers and people working from a spiritual dimension. It's a space of discussion, participation and experimentation, a space facilitated by artists directly in and on the land. The national independence debate is a key part of this creative space. It creates a field of operation, and as long as we have the confidence to have a national conversation, it means we are not trapped in the dependency culture of the I-BIN. I will be voting yes on September the 18th because I believe a yes vote will continue the momentum for a more grown-up attitude to power and decision-making in our country and our region, and this will be a force for good in the rest of Britain and the wider world. That was great. Um, and I particularly liked, I hadn't heard when I'd been playing that at home, the cow in the background was fantastic, but it was great. And it just by happy coincidence, uh, Matt Baker is here with us today. So I think we can give a second round of applause for Matt Baker. Thanks, Thanks Matt, that was brilliant. So, uh, Sarah, if you'd like to come and fetch the Bibbity Bobbity hat, uh, that's a Bowie reference, I know not everybody gets it, the, the Bibbity Bobbity hat, into which we'll put our sentences and we'll see if we've got uh, the material for a crowdsourced poem. So if you remember, the, the sentence was community is, dot, dot, dot. Um, and we'll collect them all in. One thing, I don't know if I mentioned this before, but the, um, the, uh, uh, these, all of this material that you're sending in now is going to be collected together and go to the National Library of Scotland's Referendum Archive. Every day we do a sentence. Um, we did Braveheart is the other day, England is the other day, yesterday was Ireland, uh, we were discussing Ireland. And all of that material, all of your receipts and your bus tickets and everything, is going to go into um, into the archive. Um, and so, 
in fact, when this, this didn't come out, it's not because we suggested it, it was because it so happened that on our first day, um, the keeper of the referendum archive happened to be in the Bowie yurt in pursuit of material. And when we just, we didn't know that we were going to do this. So we just, instead of having paper laid out like you normally would, we just asked people like we have to you to write on flyers. And so when she saw all this, she looked and her eyes lit up and she went, oh, this is gold. And it's because, as you can see, that for the archivist in a few hundred years' time, who's looking through, what you write about community will only be half as interesting as what you've written about community on the back of, or the receipt, or whatever it is. Anyway, here we go. So, should we try the... Uh, just see how many you can get... I don't think we'll get them all, but they all do get read out on the podcast, and we do also um, uh, record them all. We'll, we'll, we'll record them all on the podcast, and they'll all go in the archive, and we write them all in the Great Bowie guest book. Okay? Can you give me some one at a time? So here we go. So, community is something we've lost. Community is down to individuals. Community is a word with two M's. Community is caring about others' well-being when you don't necessarily have to. Community is bigger and better. Community is people and peoples. Community is culture and character. Community is people living with me. I think there's something else as well, but that's good. A community is uh, hard to spell. Community... No, it's not. Community is found in unexpected places. Community is a vibrant place where people matter and where ideas are nurtured and developed, a place where people get involved. Community is a way of finding yourself. Community is having a safe net to be free to fail. Community is why does Edinburgh ignore cycle lanes? <laughs> Community is shared over... Uh, shared ownership, community is loving your neighbour, whether next door or over the border community is the we shop on the corner, use it or lose it, community is people continuing to can't read that uh, people is all of us thinking differently working together, playing together, let's have one more community is sharing very good, uh, this last one Nope, can't read it. Okay, fantastic. Well done. Congratulate yourselves on your crowdsourced poem. Uh, so, fantastic. Uh, we're nearly at the end. Um, before we have a final uh, song from Lomond Campbell and welcome him back to the stage, I just want to say thanks very much. Thanks again. Please give it up for Leslie Riddick. A, uh, um, Thanks, thanks to Hugh Muschamp for talking about his heat map. Um, thanks to Callum Roger for his amazing poem. Thanks to Matt Baker from his wonderful letter from Dumfries and Galloway. And finally, a last very big thanks to Lomond Campbell. Welcome to the stage, Lomond Campbell, to uh, sing our final song.
blackest color of my love shadow stretches far over the hill sweeps out the sunlight and blackens the marrow and rests in my heart like a chill no sweet song no savior just a coal miner's daughter my birthright was sold for a coin Nineteen long decades of slavery and slaughter From the deep earth's core we have been torn But my dark heart lover, I won't adore you Oh heart, my heart turns to stone other could conquer the landscape before you, a blackened and lustrous home. say thanks very much to you guys for coming out I please come again to the Bowie Yurt tomorrow uh, we're talking about whales we've got a fantastic panel for you tomorrow um, if you want to check out the website you can find out the stuff we're talking about for the rest of the festival uh, but in the meantime thanks for coming to All Back to Bowie's and enjoy the rest of your day at the Fringe thanks very much sentences from show 15. The uh, sentence was community is. Community is a partnership. Community is best realised through co-mutiny. Community is when you know the postman. Community is energy. Community is just as Leslie Riddick described it. Community is town councils, local heat systems, social enterprise, listening to poetry, land to grow our food. Community is a way of finding yourself. Community is singing, smiling, schooling and surviving together. Community is people working together to make harmony. 
Community is a civil partnership between people who don't know or like each other but pull together when needed. Community is an inclusive, caring people that are positive, forward-looking and can laugh at ourselves. Community is something we've lost. Community is an opportunity to control our future. Community is sharing. Community is all of us thinking differently, working, playing together. Community is the great wee shop on the corner. Use it or lose it. Community is people combining to effect, not possible by individuals on their own. Community is loving your neighbour, whether next door or over the border. Community is shared ownership. Community is coming together with those who live where you, we live. Community is having a safe net to be free to fail. Community is hard to spell, embraces diversity. Community is a vibrant place where people matter and where ideas are nurtured and developed, a place where people get involved. Community is people living with me and fish. Community is the foundation of our culture and character. Community is people and peoples. Community is bigger and better. Community is caring about others' well-being when you don't necessarily have to. Community is a word with two M's. Community is down to individuals. Community is everyone working together. Community is sharing a gin. Community is camaraderie and commitment to everyone else. Community is working and caring for each other. Community is heated, not lukewarm. Community is everyone contributing. Community is how we will change for the better. Community is sweeping my bit of the pavement every morning. Community is warm and fuzzy, gritty and tricky and vital. Community is looking after one another through the journey of life. Community is a group of choice as well as geography. Community is essential and central lifeblood. Community is always being warm in heart and home. Community is living, working, encouraging, supporting together for the greater good. Community is the quickest way of getting things done. Community is people living together in times we need support and help from each other. Alba Gobra. Community is independent thinking. Community is consolidation of caring, collectivization for change. Community is smiling at people you don't know very well and saying hello just to be friendly when you invest in people. Community is caring for each other. Community is being able to ask your neighbour for an onion, whoever they are, and to cry with them and laugh with them. Community is can do it. Community is all about working together to make life better for oneself and one's neighbours. Community is engagement. Community is found in unexpected places.